The Old Testament reading will be Exodus 23, verses 1 through 9. Exodus 23, verses 1 through 9. And the New Testament reading will be 1 Timothy 5, 17 through 25. That will be the sermon text for today. Exodus 23, verses 1 through 9. Hear now the reading of God's most holy word. You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be malicious, a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. And you shall take no bribe. For a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. You shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Let us go now to 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 through 25. Hear the words of the Apostle Paul to his co-worker Timothy, 1 Timothy 5, beginning in verse 17. There we read, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the Scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are cannot remain hidden. Even those that are not cannot remain hidden, rather. So far the reading of God's most holy word. May He add His blessing to the preaching of it this morning. Here in 1 Timothy 5, 17-25, we see that Paul continues to give instruction to Timothy concerning the proper care of various groups within Christ's church. First, we remember he addressed the proper treatment of men and women, young and old. Next, he addressed the care of widows. And here in this passage, Paul addresses the treatment of elders, saying, among other things, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. And should be clear to us that when Paul mentions elders here in this text, he does not mean those who are older, 
but rather those who hold the office of elder within Christ's church. That is the group that he is here focusing upon, those who serve as elders within Christ's church. And the first thing he says is that some elders are to receive double honor. That is what he says in verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. As you know, elders are leaders in the church appointed to this office to provide general oversight of the church and also pastoral care for the members. We know that elders are to be able to teach and they are to devote themselves to prayer. Elders may be called pastors, overseers, shepherds, or bishops. You know that I said more about the office of overseer or elder in that sermon that was preached some time ago on 1 Timothy 3, 1-7, where the qualifications for overseers are laid out. And I'm not going to repeat that general teaching here, but we'll simply draw your attention to the specifics of this text. One, I want for you to notice the word rule in verse 17. The word translated as rule means to guide, to direct, to lead. And here at Emmaus, we have a congregational form of government. This means that the congregation is to be involved in the appointment and removal of officers and in the reception and removal of members. Uh, This, in our opinion, is the biblical requirement for, for members. They must be involved in these things. We do also ask the members to vote to approve the budget each year. We just did this not long ago. And this, in our opinion, is not required by Scripture, but it is a matter of prudence. It is a matter of prudence. It's good for you to be involved in how the money is handled here at the church. It's transparent. But here is the point that I wish to make. This congregational form of church government does not deny what the Scriptures so clearly teach, That is, that pastors and elders are also called to lead. They are called to rule. This is one of the things they are appointed to do. And so you see, the members of a biblically operating church have responsibilities and certain powers, and so do the elders of the church. Both the members and the elders are to do their part. And so I have drawn your attention to the word rule in verse 17. Two, you will notice that a distinction is made here between elders who rule and elders who labor in preaching and teaching. You will remember in our study of 1 Timothy 3, we learned that one of the qualifications to hold the office of overseer or elder is that a man is able to teach. That is 1 Timothy 3, 2. All elders are to be able to teach, but here we learn that some elders may devote themselves more to ruling, while others may be more thoroughly devoted to preaching and teaching. Can you see that principle here in this text? I take the terms preaching and teaching to be nearly synonymous. If there is a distinction, preaching may refer to the ministry of the Word delivered in a more formal context to the entire congregation. That is what is happening right now. Whereas teaching may refer to the ministry of the Word delivered in a more casual setting. Elders meeting with the congregation and ministering the Word of God to them or teaching perhaps in a classroom type setting. And so if there is a distinction between these terms, I think that is probably it. But the point is this, among the plurality of elders in a congregation, some of those elders may devote themselves more exclusively to ruling, whereas others may devote themselves more thoroughly to the ministry of the Word. In some traditions, a hard and fast distinction is made between ruling elders and teaching elders, so that a man is ordained as either... 
one kind of elder or another. And so in that church you will have elders, but they will be called either ruling elders or teaching elders. Our constitution does not make such a hard and fast distinction. We do not have ruling elders and teaching elders, only elders. But it does acknowledge the gradation that Paul here refers to, saying in Article 7, Section 4 of our Constitution, while every elder bears spiritual rule and must be apt to teach, some will be more exclusively engaged in the details of ruling rather than teaching. And I believe this is the right approach. It's biblical. Again, we do not have ruling elders and teaching elders. We have elders with the understanding that some elders will be more active in teaching than others, while all will engage in ruling or leading the congregation. Three, and here is the main point, elders who rule well, and in particular those who labor in preaching and teaching, and and here I understand this to mean that they give themselves to it, they work hard in it, they devote a substantial amount of time to preaching and teaching. These are to be considered worthy of double honor. That is what the text says. They are to be considered worthy of double honor. Now the question is, what does that mean? What does the phrase double honor mean? And there are many opinions about this, actually. Some teach that double honor requires that elders who labor in teaching receive both honor in the form of respect and honor in the form of financial compensation. Others highlight the relationship between this passage and the previous one. In the previous one, Paul commanded that honor be shown to true widows. Remember that? Honor was to be shown to them, and that would involve, in fact, financial support. And if we compare this passage to that one, the view is that double honor is to be shown to elders. In other words, they are to receive uh, twice as much support, twice as much, uh, when compared to the the widows who are supported uh, by the church. And still others consider the phrase double honor in a more generic sense and take it to mean that those who labor in the word are to be generously provided for. Double honor is to be shown for them. They are to be provided for and generously so. These hard-working elders devoted to the ministry of the word are to be generously supported. And to be transparent with you all, I have often wondered what this phrase means myself. I've struggled to know. As of late, I have leaned more in the direction of understanding double honor to refer to the two types of honor to be shown to elders who rule well, particularly those who labor in preaching and teaching. They are one... To be honored, that is to say, shown respect, given the position they hold. And two, they are to be honored through financial support. I think this view best fits the context. This double honor is honor in the form of respect, given the position they hold, and also honor in the form of financial compensation for their labors in the ministry of the Word of God. The first kind of honor, as I have said, is respect. And that respect should be shown to those who hold the office of elder is very clear throughout the scriptures. Hebrews 13, 17 speaks to this saying, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So, the teaching here is, honor them, show them respect. Uh, Let them lead you and let it be pleasant, their, their leadership of you. Other texts could be cited, but I don't think you need to be convinced of this point. The second kind of honor, as I have said, is that elders who labor in the Word are to be supported financially. This is made clear 
in verse 18 of this passage where we read, For the Scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. So here Paul explains what he means by this second kind of honor. He's talking about financial support. He, he means that elders who devote themselves to the ministry of the Word are to be compensated. And he quotes two Scripture texts to support this claim. The first is Deuteronomy 25.4, which simply says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it is treading out the grain. So here Paul is quoting from the law of Moses. And you will notice that this law was originally speaking to the humane treatment of a beast of burden. If an ox is going to work for you, if it is going to tread out the grain, that ox should also be permitted to eat some of that grain so that it might be nourished and thus work for you. This is an ethical thing here. Even beasts of burden are to be treated humanely. And I think this is a fascinating little verse. It's, it's very insightful as to how Paul uses the Old Testament Scriptures here. Don't you agree with me? What an interesting text to quote when he's talking about the support of, of elders uh, within the church. He goes to Deuteronomy 25.4, which speaks of oxen. And so though this law concerning oxen was unique to the Old Covenant nation of Israel, Paul recognized that there was a universal moral principle at the core of it. So we learn... We learn a little bit about Paul's view of the Old Covenant law. This was, this was unique to Israel. It was a, a law that governed, governed them as a nation. But, but Paul was able to see there was a universal principle at the core of it. And so he grabbed a hold of that principle, picked it up, and applied it even to uh, the compensation of elders. Elders are to be compensated if they labor in preaching and teaching. If they sow their time, talents, and energies, then they have a right to reap a livelihood. If this is true of oxen, which it is, then it is certainly true of men. A man should be compensated for his labors. Paul here applies this principle to ministers of the gospel, those who labor in preaching and teaching. Again, I take that to mean those who work hard, having been set aside by the church to devote lots of time to the ministry of the Word. They're to be supported. The second scripture quoted is also rooted in Old Testament law particularly Leviticus 19.13 and Deuteronomy 24.15, but it is drawn directly from Luke 10.7 where we find the words of Jesus. In that passage, Jesus is sending out His disciples for ministry and He instructs them in that instance to carry no money bag, but to receive support from those willing to give it. His disciples were to remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages, He says. So go out and do kingdom work, preach the gospel, do the ministry of the word, and receive your sustenance from those houses, those families that are willing to provide it. Why? For a laborer deserves his wages, is what Jesus says. As you know, it was often Paul's custom to not accept financial support from the people he served, but to work with his hands as he traveled about and planted churches. That was his custom. As a church planter, that was his approach. But in 1 Corinthians 9, 3 and following, he makes it clear that he had a right to be supported as he labored amongst the churches, saying, This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? 
Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written, here it is again in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does He not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope of the thresher, uh, excuse me, the plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Those are the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 9, 13-14. I do believe that when Paul says that elders who labor in preaching and teaching should receive double honor, this is what he means. First, they are to receive honor in the form of respect, given their position. And secondly, they are to receive honor in the form of adequate financial compensation. In fact, this is the teaching of our confession. I think this is the view our confession takes. In chapter 26, paragraph 10, we read, "...the work of pastors being constantly to attend the service of Christ in His churches, and the ministry of the Word and prayer with watching for their souls as they must give an account to Him, it is incumbent on the churches to whom they minister not only to give them all due respect, but also to communicate to them all of all their good things according to their ability, so as they may have a comfortable supply without being themselves entangled in secular affairs." and may also be capable of exercising hospitality towards others. And this is required by the law of nature and the express order of our Lord Jesus, who hath ordained that they that preach the gospel should live by the gospel. And so you will notice that this is the teaching of our confession, which also lists 1 Timothy 5.17 as a proof text. I think this is the meaning of this text. So how might we apply this teaching? That elders who rule well particularly those who labor in preaching and teaching, are to receive double honor from the congregation. How are we to apply this? Well, this church hardly needs to be told to provide financial support for those who devote themselves to full-time ministry. This you've been faithful to do from our very beginning. And neither do you need to be exhorted to show honor in the form of respect to your elders. In general, you have also excelled at this. However, I suppose it is very good to be reminded of these truths. And I hope you agree. Here is where I wish to go with the application and exhortation. Brothers and sisters, as we prepare to move into the second decade of our existence, and yes, our 10-year anniversary will be celebrated on June the 6th. Can you believe it? It's here. As we prepare to move into the second decade of our existence, we must be careful to not grow complacent but to resolve to grow and to even reproduce as a congregation if the Lord would be so kind to enable us to do so. And if the Lord would be so kind so as to raise up more gifted brothers to minister the word here, future elders and pastors and even church planters, these are things we've been praying for for a long time, these men will need to be supported to one degree or another. They'll need to be trained. And that costs money, brothers and sisters. And it is only right that those who labor in the ministry be compensated for their labors. Now, 
Determining what exactly that looks like requires wisdom and discernment. It's not going to look the same in every situation. But the point is this, as a congregation, we must be faithful to give as an act of worship to God and in support of the furtherance of Christ's kingdom. Kingdom work costs money, brothers and sisters. Do you realize that? I think sometimes we just don't think about it. Kingdom work costs money. There's absolutely no way around it. Those who devote themselves to leading the church and to the ministry of the Word, they must eat. They must feed and clothe their families. The time and energy that they devote to the work of ministry is time and energy that is no longer available for earning a living. Now, granted, some of this work can be volunteered. Much of it is here at Emmaus, in fact. And some are in a position where they may engage in substantial ministry and not take support from the church. Perhaps the man is retired. Perhaps he is wealthy. Perhaps he has a job that enables him to engage in ministry, substantial ministry on the side. That seemed to be Paul's situation. He was able to work with his hands, earn his own living, provide for himself as a bachelor, right? And plant churches. It worked, but it does not work in every situation, In fact, the norm is this, if a church is to thrive, she will probably need a man or men to labor in leadership, preaching and teaching, to devote themselves fully to it, to the point of setting aside secular employment, and they will need to be honored through compensation. And this cannot happen if the members of the church do not give. This cannot happen if the members of the church do not give. We must give, brothers and sisters. We must give as an act of worship to God. We must give knowing that our giving does support kingdom work. Please make that connection. When we pray for the furtherance of the kingdom, we are asking that the gospel would go forth, that the church would grow, that more churches would be planted in this place into the furthest reaches of the earth. And you say, well, how can I contribute to kingdom work? Well, one of the ways that you can contribute is by giving worshipfully uh, to the Lord, thankfully to the Lord, Uh, Those funds are used for the advancement of of Christ's kingdom. We must give, and we must see to it that the funds of the church are used for the furtherance of the kingdom and are not squandered on fruitless endeavors. We cannot waste the Lord's money. The elders and deacons must lead in this, but the members must also be watchful. And so the exhortation is this, brothers and sisters, let us be faithful to give. I should probably say that you have been All of these years, this is not the church being reprimanded in this moment. You've been faithful to give, and frankly, I don't know who gives what. I haven't a clue. But do be faithful to give. Don't grow slack in this. Uh, Let's continue as we move on to the future to, to give sacrificially, thankfully, worshipfully, knowing that there's a connection between that and our ability as a congregation to do more and more for the advancement of Christ's kingdom. And also, let us be faithful to pray for our elders and to encourage them in their work. The work of the ministry is hard work, friends. I hope you understand this. I think it is sometimes hard for those who have not experienced the ministry or who have not had a close-up view of it to imagine. But it is hard work. Believe it it or not, and here you're going to scoff at me maybe, I don't know. Reading and writing is taxing. It is. Some of you who work with your hands are going to look at me and say, come on, man, really? Well... It is week after week, taxing work, to study hard and, and to write. It, 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 takes, it takes a toll, a certain kind of toll on you. Preaching even takes it out of you. I'm tired by Sunday evening. Counseling does too. And above all, and we will come to this a little bit later, 
dealing with controversy and turmoil could be very draining. It's not a complaint. I'm not complaining to you. You all work hard in your places of employment and in your homes. Don't you? I hope that you do. And you go to bed tired at night. And it's right and good that you do. But those who labor in the ministry, elders who, who serve in Christ's church, also work hard. It's right that they do. And here I am simply reminding you to pray for your elders, not just me, but the others as well. Pray for me as I devote myself full time to ministry, but also pray for those who serve and who work very hard while engaging in secular employment. Honor them. Honor them. And encourage them. Pray for them, brothers and sisters. The strength of the eldership does have a lot to do with the strength of the church. So double honor is to be shown to elders who rule well, particularly those who work hard and are devoted to the ministry of the Word. But you will notice, secondly, that elders are not above the discipline of the church. Elders are not above the discipline of the church. No, even pastors and elders are subject to church discipline. And that is what Paul addresses next. Verse 19. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. This is a very important passage. You are to see that elders are not above church discipline. If an elder is found to be living in sin and continues in sin, he is to be rebuked, the passage says, and he is to be rebuked in the presence of all. I take all here to mean all the members of the church. And I take the phrase, so that the rest may stand in fear, as a reference to the whole congregation, consisting of elders and deacons and members. And why do I think this? Well, it seems to me that church discipline is what is being described here in this passage. And this is what the Scriptures teach regarding discipline. After being confronted once by a brother or sister, and then again by multiple witnesses, if there is no repentance, the matter is to be brought to the church. It's to be told to the congregation, so that... The whole church might urge the sinning brother or sister to repent. This is what Matthew 18 teaches. Now, so much more would need to be said if I were here teaching on the subject of church discipline. I'm not. And so my remarks are very brief. In fact, they're incomplete. But for now, simply recognize that elders are not above it. Even they are to be rebuked in the presence of all if they persist in sin, so that the rest may stand in fear. And this, by the way, is one of the effects of church discipline, isn't it? When it is done carefully and right, it moves the members of the congregation, everyone, to a healthy and reverential fear. All who witness it think, I had better keep a close watch on my walk. And, but by the grace of God, go I. It's sobering to witness church discipline being done. And again, elders are not above it. This is very significant. Think of it. In this church, your elders are not above public rebuke. I think it is good to remember that they are but men. Men who are fallible. Men who are prone to stumble. And if they should stumble, then it is right that they be confronted about that in a biblical manner. And should they persist in sin, then 
this matter, whatever it is, can't be dealt with off in a back room somewhere. But they're to be treated as all the members of the church are treated in regard to sin. Why? Because we love them and care for them and we love Christ's church and we want to see her flourish. I should say this before you all get worried. There's no trouble (laughs) with our elders. None of them. We've simply come to this portion of Paul's letter to Timothy and that's why I'm preaching on this subject. Elders are not above church discipline, but neither are they below it. Neither are they below it. And here is what I mean by that. They are to be afforded the same courtesy as others in the congregation as it pertains to accusations. Remember the pattern established in Matthew 18. Here I'll read it. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. And so, elders are not below church discipline. A charge is to be established first by two or three witnesses before it is to be received by the church. This is true for members, and this is also true for all ministers. And this is why Paul says, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. And it's not hard to see why he says this. I suppose that some may reason this way, saying, elders are to be held to a higher standard. Therefore, every charge brought against them should be received. Paul says, no. The same protections are to be applied to them. Matthew 18 speaks to the requirement of witnesses, but this principle is first found in the Law of Moses, which says, On the evidence of two witnesses, or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. So there is the principle. There is where it is established in God's law. In other words, a man is not to be punished unless a matter is proven beyond a reasonable doubt. I appreciate John Calvin's remarks concerning Paul's command here, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Calvin says, listen carefully, After having commanded that salary should be paid to pastors, he likewise instructs Timothy not to allow them to be assailed by calumnies, that means slanderous charges, or loaded with any accusations, but what is supported by sufficient proof. But it may be thought strange that he represents as peculiar or unique to elders a law which is common to all. Doesn't this principle apply to all? Yes, it does. God lays down authoritatively this law as applicable to all cases, that they should be decided by the mouth of two or three witnesses. Why then does the apostle protect elders alone by this privilege as if it were peculiar or unique to them, that their innocence shall be defended against false accusations. I reply, this is a necessary remedy against all the malice of men, for none are more liable to slanders and calumnies than godly teachers. None are more exposed and vulnerable to slanders than godly teachers, says Calvin. Not only does it arise from the difficulty of their office, that sometimes they either sink under it or stagger or halt or blunder in consequence of... uh, of which wicked men seize many occasions for finding fault with them. In other words, sometimes they do stumble, and some men take the opportunity to pile on them when they stumble. But there is this additional vexation that although they perform their duty correctly so as not to commit any error whatsoever, they never escape a thousand censures. 
They never escape critique. They never escape the slanders of other, others. And this is the craftiness of Satan, to draw away the hearts of men from ministers, that instruction may gradually fall into contempt. Thus, not only is, it wrong, is wrong done to innocent persons, and having their reputation unjustly wounded, which is exceedingly base in regard to those who hold so honorable a rank, but the authority of the sacred doctrine of God is diminished. Do you get Calvin's point? Why does Paul here take this universal principle and apply it so specifically to members, to, to ministers, that, um, that there need to be witnesses before a charge is accepted. He says, because ministers are particularly vulnerable to this. They're particularly vulnerable to the sin of slander. Those who wish to do harm to, to Christ and His church will, will pile on uh, with ridiculous accusations upon min, uh, ministers. Brethren, elders are not above church discipline, but neither are they below it. They too, and perhaps I should say, they especially must be afforded the protection of having charges established by two or three witnesses before those charges are received as true. In verse 21, this little section regarding the discipline of elders is concluded with a very stern warning. There the Apostle says, in the present... Just listen to the seriousness of this. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Sounds serious, doesn't it? Um, Paul is very serious here. In fact, he calls God, Jesus Christ, and the elect angels as witnesses to the charge or the command. And yes, you heard it right by the way. The angels who did not rebel, they did not rebel because they are God's elect angels. So God has elected some men to be saved from their sins, and He did elect some angels never to fall. It's an interesting observation, but the main point is this. Paul calls God, Christ, and the elect angels as witnesses to this charge he's about to give to Timothy. And that means we should probably listen up. This is important. And what does he insist upon? Two things. One, Timothy, and along with him the whole church in Ephesus, was to keep these rules, were to keep these rules regarding the discipline of elders without prejudging, and two, they were to do nothing from partiality. Do not prejudge and do not be partial. Be very careful in this, Paul is saying to Timothy and to all elders and to all of us. Do not prejudge and do nothing from partiality. What does it mean to prejudge? To prejudge is to take a side on a matter ahead of time before knowing the facts. To take a side on a matter before knowing the facts. If you are a parent, you probably know what it is like to prejudge. You've probably snipped at your kid thinking you knew what happened only to find out just a moment later there was more to the story. I've done that as a parent. It's not good and it's not pleasant. You end up with mud on your face. You have to go back to your child and say, please forgive me for snapping at you. First of all, I shouldn't have snapped at you. Secondly, I shouldn't have jumped to conclusions. Our society seems to have prejudging as a hobby, I have noticed. People sticking their nose in business that is none of theirs, making judgments about things that they know nothing about, making judgments before hearing the other side. This is not a Christian thing to do, brothers and sisters. We need to avoid it. As Proverbs 18.13 says, If one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. And so do not prejudge. Understand that there will often, if not always, be two sides to the same story. Beware of the fact that men do lie. Some slander with malicious intent. Do not prejudge. And what does it mean to be partial? 
To be partial is to show prefer- preferential treatment to someone for some reason. It could be just about anything. Perhaps the person is related to you, and so you take their side. Perhaps the person is rich, and so you take their side. Perhaps they are likable. Perhaps they have power in society or have influence within the church. On and on I could go. You could see why the temptation is there. Here is a problem that arises within the church, and a minister is tempted to be partial, to show partiality to someone for some reason. And Paul charges Timothy to never ever show partiality, but to always judge and act according to truth and with courage. This is the standard for every minister, and it is also the standard for every member. The warning is so solemn because the matter is so very serious. It is not at all difficult to imagine the mess that would be made of a church if these rules for the discipline of elders in particular and others were not followed without prejudging impartiality. Do you really have to be convinced of this, brothers and sisters? A society is going to become a mess if judges in the civil realm judge, prejudge, and show partiality, and so too within the church. So how might we apply this little section on the discipline of elders? One, in general, we are reminded by this passage that we cannot simply allow issues to go unaddressed within the congregation, even, or maybe I should say especially, within the eldership. Issues of all kinds, and sin in particular, must be addressed. They must be addressed. I have noticed that many churches and many families have the habit of allowing matters to go unaddressed. Something bad will happen and they will sweep it under the rug. And perhaps you have noticed by witnessing things like this that the issue or sin does not go away. does not go away. In fact, it grows, it festers, it stinks more with the passing of time. That is what happens. And brothers and sisters, I would say to you, if it is your habit to be non-confrontational in the home and in the marriage, I would urge you to change that. Things will not get better but worse with the passing of time. And as a church, we must also be faithful to address problems and sins. The elders of the church have an important role to play in this. They are to lead. But in fact, it starts with you, the members of the congregation, not with us, the elders. Do you realize that? It starts with you. If you are seeing trouble within the church, if you notice sin, or if you've taken offense to someone, do not sit around and think, well, at some point, Pastor Joe will notice it and he will act. That is not biblical. If you notice it, you are to go to the brother or sister who has offended you or who has sinned against you. It starts with you. And it must start with you. It's not healthy if it's all left to the eldership. In fact, the members of the congregation are to exhort, encourage one another. You must have enough love and respect for one another to be willing to say, brother or sister, you offended me or you sinned against me. And ignoring issues might be more pleasant in the immediate. I I do not know of very many people who love confrontation. There are some like that, but not many. But in the long run, the results will be disastrous. Ignoring problems is like ignoring a cancerous tumor. It's not going to disappear. It's only going to grow. And brothers and sisters, we must have the courage to deal with problems as they arise. We must trust the Lord that He will strengthen us and bless us as we follow His Word. We must do things His way. Two, this passage also reminds us that we are to address issues and sin within the congregation with great care. With great care. 
Here we are warned to never jump to conclusions. Here we see that time will need to be taken to look into things. Energy will need to be expended. This is a part of ministry. This is part of church life. It cannot be avoided. Here we are warned to never show preferential treatment. Great care is to be taken in these matters. The passage demands this, and also you can see why I'm saying this practically speaking. Some, upon hearing me say we must confront issues within the congregation, will in their zeal run to confront everybody all at once, you know, harshly. It's immaturity that drives that. Instead, we need to be careful in our relationships with one another. We need to not jump to conclusions or show preferential treatment, but check our own hearts in these things as we love one another in the Lord. Why? Why must sin be addressed and with great care within the church? Answer, because of what the church is. Remember, she is the bride of Christ. She is the household of God, the church of the living God. She is the temple of the Holy Spirit. This is the assembly of God's redeemed, those washed in the blood of the Lamb. And and what is God doing with us? Well, among other things, He is sanctifying us. He is refining and sharpening us. And we know that one of the ways that God refines and sharpens His people is through interaction with one another. We are God's people washed in the blood of the Lamb, and we are to be made holy progressively over time. This is why sin cannot be tolerated within the congregation and unaddressed, because of the nature of what the church is. The bride of Christ, brothers and sisters, and we cannot forget it. The church is to be kept holy, and this is why sin cannot be ignored. Not within the membership of the church, and especially not within the eldership. But again, great care needs to be taken when addressing the sins of others. It is so easy to err in this, brothers and sisters, And why is it so easy to err in this? For one, we are not omniscient. We are not omniscient. God is omniscient. And He will judge with absolute perfection at the end of time. Why is He able to judge with absolute perfection? Because He sees all things with perfect clarity. He even sees the hearts of men. We do not. Sometimes things are very cloudy to us. Sometimes our own emotions and presuppositions get in the way. So does this mean that we are never to confront or judge because we are limited in this way? The answer is no. The scriptures say that we must. But we must do so with care. We are to take our time. We are to demand multiple witnesses. We are to talk and listen carefully and respectfully. We're to rely upon the counsel of others. We're to pray for wisdom, discernment, and clarity, all the while keeping our own hearts pure, being sure to remove the log, even the splinters and specks from our own eye before we attempt to remove the speck from the eye of another. Brothers and sisters, we need to be clothed with humility and love. We need to ask the Lord for wisdom. We need to say, Lord, help us in these matters. And I would say to you as I conclude this portion of application, please pray for your leadership in this regard. Again, there is no trouble amongst the elders currently. But do pray for your elders that we would walk worthy, that we would lead well within this congregation. And that leads us now to the last point, which is found in verses 22 through 25. There Paul warns that elders are to be ordained with great care and caution. Do not be hasty in laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. And then Paul adds this little remark, No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. 
And then he continues with his main point. The sins of some people are conspicuous going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also with good works they are conspicuous. Uh, and even those that are, are not cannot remain hidden. This is wonderful advice. In fact, it's not advice, it's a command. And there is so much wisdom in it. It's not difficult to see why Paul says this here. The best way to avoid being put in the uncomfortable and difficult position of having to rebuke an elder in the presence of all is to appoint godly elders in the first place. That is the way to avoid it. And one way to make a real mess of things within the church, conversely, is to appoint ungodly elders. And so what does Paul here urge? He urges us to move slowly and with caution. Don't be hasty, he says. The phrase, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, means do not appoint men to the office of elder too quickly. When a man is appointed the office of elder, the current elders are on the behalf of the congregation to come and to lay hands on the man, to pray and to ordain him to the office. And Paul's saying, don't do it quickly. Do not take part in the sins of others indicates that when elders lay hands on immature, untested, and sinful men to appoint them to the office of elder, they do take part in their sin to some degree. Do you see it? By doing this, you are, you are in fact promoting sin within the congregation. And Paul warns Timothy and all pastors to keep themselves pure in this regard. I think it is interesting that Paul interjects with some personal advice for Timothy at this point. It's here in verse 23 that he says, No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Now, evidently, Timothy was struggling with some health issues. And the context seems to indicate that these health issues were induced by the stress of dealing with the sins of leaders within the church, with accusations brought against leaders, whether true or false, and perhaps with the pressure to appoint men to the office of elder hastily. If this were not the reason for Timothy's ailments, then it is hard to understand why Paul would make this remark here and in this place. Are you following me? It seems so random. Here's Paul rolling along with it. With, with instruction for the appointment of elders, and then he starts talking about Timothy's health problems. Why? I think we are to make the connection that Timothy was struggling with the stress of ministry. He was being overwhelmed with the burden of sin within the congregation or slanderous people within the congregation. We don't know what it was. But here, Paul does interject with this. Evidently, it was Timothy's practice to drink only water, perhaps to not offend the weaker brothers, or perhaps because he wished to live a very moderate life. We don't know. But Paul exhorted him to take a little wine for his stomach and frequent ailments. He says a little wine, not because he was concerned about Timothy being given to drunkenness, but so that he would not be misunderstood by others who would read this later, you and me being some of those. Drinking to the point of drunkenness is never permissible, brothers and sisters, and we know that some do drink to the point of drunkenness to run from their anxieties and fears. And clearly Paul is not encouraging Timothy to do that. But he does encourage Timothy to take a little wine for his stomach. That is to say for medicinal purposes. After this Paul returns to his main point and brings it to a conclusion. In verse 24 saying, The sins of some people are conspicuous going before them to judgment, 
But the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. I do not think I fully appreciated this, these verses here until I was in full-time pastoral ministry for a few years. They are so filled with truth. What does Paul mean? What does he mean? The word conspicuous means very obvious or easy to see. And here Paul is making this observation. The sins of some people are very easy to see. That is what he says. They are right out there in the open, leading the way to judgment. But, Paul also observes, that the sins of others are not so obvious. They are not easy to see. They appear later. And, he says, so it is with good works. Sometimes the good works that people do are obvious and easy to see, but sometimes they are hidden. Paul is here referring to those who live holy lives and do good works discreetly. But these good works, done in secret, will not remain hidden either. Over time, they are bound to appear. What is his point? His point is very simple. Timothy, take time to get to know people. Take time to get to know people. And do not be quick to ordain a man to the office of elder. You are to wait to see the fruit of his life, whether he produces good fruit or bad. The man must be known, and you need to move slowly before appointing men to the office of elder. There's too much at stake to appoint a sinful man to the office. And so how might we apply this final point? I have three very brief remarks. One, when it comes time for us to appoint new elders and even deacons, we cannot be hasty. We must examine the man to be sure that he holds to sound doctrine, is morally qualified, gifted, and called to the ministry. The church is to be a part of this process, but the current elders do have a special role to play. They will be the ones to lay their hands on the man to bless him and to appoint him to the ministry. Elders must be sure not to rush this process too. We must not err on the other side, moving too slowly, being hindered by fear of the unknown. Do you see what I'm saying here? I wonder if this is not a problem in some churches that have an appropriately high view of the ministry. Their respect for the eldership and their fear of getting it wrong is so great that they move forward very slowly and with extreme caution. Maybe they have their reasons. But I do sometimes wonder if the work of the ministry and the furtherance of the kingdom is not sometimes hindered by this overly cautious approach. Brothers and sisters, as I have said, we are not omniscient. We will never get this just right. But we must do our best. We must follow the command of Scripture here. But we also must move forward in faith trusting that the Lord will protect us and preserve us and even give us the strength that we need to deal with difficult problems as they arise within the church and even amongst the elders of the church. We must not rush, but neither should we move too slowly. Thirdly, and this is a more generic suggestion for application, we as a congregation do need to spend time with one another to develop close and meaningful relationships so that we do actually know one another. I think you would agree with this. It's easier not to do it, isn't it, in some ways? 
here you are struggling with your own issues and, and, and then you think, it would just be better if I kept them to myself. Remain guarded, didn't let anyone else in. Easier in the moment, friends, but not good in the long run. Or perhaps you have this mindset, people are messy, and they are. We all are. It's just easier for me to, to, to retreat into my private environment and, and to just to, to not get to know others, to not open up my home to them, etc. Ignorance is bliss, isn't it? Well, maybe in the short run, but not in the long We must get to know one another. We must do more than show up here on Sundays, say hello to a few people, worship and go home. In the church, we are to enjoy fellowship with one another. This means we are to establish and maintain deep and meaningful relationships. Why? Because we have Christ in common. We have eternity in common. Remember, we are brothers and sisters in Him. We are to love one another. We are to see that our culture is so very fragmented, individualistic, and it is lonely. But this cannot be the case within the church. It cannot be. I will say that COVID-19 and the government shutdowns have only amplified this problem within our culture. You can see it. How long will it last? No one one knows. But I suspect that the effects will be very long-lasting. People all around us are forgetting how to love their neighbor. And I wonder if Christians are not forgetting how to love one another. And I am saying, brothers and sisters, don't let it happen here. As your pastor, I'm going to continue to respect your opinions regarding COVID. If you're concerned about contracting the illness and have decided to keep your distance from others for a time, I'd respect that. But in general, I appeal to the members of this church to not neglect the fellowship and to not fail to show hospitality. The world is never going to understand this. They're always going to look in upon us and say, what are they doing? They're so reckless, you know. But they're not in Christ. And they do not have hope beyond the grave. What do they have except their life here on earth, their health? And though we certainly value life on earth, and though we are deeply concerned to preserve our health and the health of others, we do have other concerns as well, don't we? And what are those concerns? The worship of God. The building up of the body of Christ, the furtherance of His kingdom, the salvation and nurturing of souls. Brothers and sisters, my point is very simple. We cannot afford to neglect fellowship as a congregation. And so I would say to you quite directly, unless you have a good reason to quarantine, and many of you do, do not neglect the fellowship and exercise hospitality. The church will not flourish without it. Let's bow together for prayer. Our Father in heaven, we are grateful for our salvation in Christ Jesus. We've been saved individually, but we know that Christ came to shed His blood for the church corporately. We thank You for Your church. We pray that You would bless this congregation for generations to come. We pray for godly leadership. We pray for a godly membership. Father, we pray for the courage that we will inevitably need in the future to to address difficult problems within our midst and to stand firm within this culture. Father, we do pray for the relationships here at Emmaus that we would truly know one another and love one another. Help us in these things. As the world looks in upon us, I'm sure that they will often be confused and will not understand us. But I do pray that they would at least see our love our love for one another in Christ Jesus. 
Father, go before us, we pray, and continue to bless our worship and the remainder of this Lord's Day. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.